Hello and welcome to In Unison. I'm Zane Fiala. And I'm Giacomo G. Gregoli. And this is our podcast all about new choral music and the composers, conductors, choristers, and administrators who bring it to life. Let's start the show! Hey everyone, Giacomo and I have a special place in our hearts for the choral music of the Philippines. We, in fact, have many mutual friends who were raised in the Filipino choral tradition. And thanks to our dear friend, Robin Estrada, we were lucky enough to get not one, but two incredible choral conductors to join us for this episode of In Unison. I know I left this interview inspired by these ensembles' dedication to excellence, and I'm sure you will too. Now, it was hard to choose which ensemble to feature first, so let's start with the older of the two groups, the Philippine Madrigal Singers. This first music selection is a classic and popular Visayan lullaby, in which we hear a nanny or perhaps a grandmother lulling a baby to sleep, telling the baby that his mother went out to buy bread. Listen for the incredibly beautiful soprano descant solo in the middle, sung by Katrina Marie Saga. This is Ili Ili Tulog Anai by Aili Matthew Mariano, featured on the album Ephonos. Bye. 
today on In Unison, we have two guests from different ensembles, but they do have something in common. They are both based in the Philippines. First up, we have Mark Anthony Carpio, choir master of the acclaimed Philippine Madrigal Singers, often just called MADS. In 2001, Mark was selected to succeed the ensemble's founder, National Artist of the Philippines, Andrea O. Veneracion, and has had an extremely successful tenure as their leader. MADS was first organized in 1963 and is composed of students, faculty, and alumni from the different colleges of the University of the Philippines. The choir is one of the world's most awarded, having consistently won all the top prizes in the world's most prestigious choral competitions, performing repertoire of various styles and forms, Renaissance music, classical music, Filipino and international folk songs, contemporary and avant-garde music, opera, and even popular music. Their specialization and focus on the magical idiom has inspired their unique setup of singing while seated in a semicircle without a conductor. There is a lot more I could say about MADS, but we'll wait and let Mark tell us more in a minute. Mark is a faculty member of the Conducting and Choral Ensemble Department at the University of the Philippines College of Music, where he earned his master's degree in choral conducting and his bachelor's degree in piano. Next up is Christopher Ong Arceo, a choral director and voice teacher whose stints in the choral field include singing for the San Francisco Choral Artists under friend of the pod Megan Solomon, as well as with the San Francisco Symphony Chorus. Prior to his time in the U.S., Chris served as assistant conductor of the Ateneo Chamber Singers from 2001 to 2007, and currently he is the resident conductor and vocal coach of the Ateneo de Manila College Glee Club. Chris directs Aleron, a male choral ensemble that has been making waves in the choral scene, especially after garnering the first prize at the first Andrea O. Veneracion International Choral Festival in Manila in 2013, as well as the grand prize at the 10th Busan International Choral Festival in Korea in 2014, and the first overall winner at the 31st Takarazuka International Chamber Chorus Contest in Japan in 2015. Alaron first came into existence in 2006 as the alumni ensemble of the Ateneo de Manila High School Glee Club, and today the group is composed of male choristers from different backgrounds, most of which are from the Ateneo and University of the Philippines musical networks. Chris, Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. We are very excited to learn all about your ensembles and Filipino choral music making. It's a pleasure and we're happy to be here. Very happy to be here. Hi, gentlemen. So your reputations definitely precede you. We have several friends who've sung in both of your organizations who have told us all about, um, a little bit about you, but our audience maybe hasn't uh, had the chance to get to know you. And we like to get to know folks a little bit more personally before we dive into the professional discussion of our art. So I have an icebreaker for each of you. Uh, Chris, let's start with you. Uh-huh. If you could conduct any musical organization at any period of time in history, what would it be and why? I'm afraid that I'm going to, I'm about to give you a very cheesy answer. <laughs> we, we like cheesy. It's good. Dad jokes are welcome on this podcast. Um, you know, of course, there are incredible amounts of, you know, great ensembles throughout history. But um, I've always seen myself as a reluctant conductor. And, you know, um, I tend to put, put those 
ensembles on such a pedestal, I wouldn't even dare to imagine myself going in front of them and giving them direction. So I suppose I would say the 20th century and conduct the very quiet I'm conducting right now, which is Aleron. I like that. I don't think that's cheesy at all. I think that's great. <laughs> You're happy to be right where you are. You are present. That's good. That's great. <laughs> Mark, here's a here's a nice breaker for you. What's the best piece of artistic advice you've ever been given? Well, I, artistic advice, that's a, <laughs> not so easy to think of, but I, I, I'm not sure if this is an artistic advice, and I'm not even sure if I... If I, it really came from my uh, from our founder because that's where that's I heard it from I got I got it from her but uh, some people say that it's a universal advice. She would tell us always uh, when what in whatever whatever piece we are working on it is very important is to practice 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 and if you think about it you practice some more. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds I about always, right. I always that. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. I like that. And mention, I mean, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the history of the group too, but we've mentioned her name a couple of times now, the, the founder of MADS, Andrea Ovenracion. She has a nickname. Yeah. Is this correct? Yes. What's the nickname that I've heard? It's our term of endearment. We call her Mam OA. OA. It's a play of Ma'am her OA. initials when she... Uh, before she got married, it's Ophilada, which is her uh, maiden name, and Andrea, her first name. So oh. Ophilada, Andrea, OA. <laughs> That's very sweet. <laughs> Maybe you could tell us a little bit. Um, we can sort of dive in a bit here now, and uh, given that history, maybe you can describe the general ethos of MADS for us. Mark, tell us a little bit about the group and its history. Well, for anybody who has... Anybody who has seen the Mads perform, you, well, anyone who goes to a concert of the Mads, the first thing that you would see are the chairs. So the chairs, we perform always, in a concert, we always perform sitting, seated down. We are seated. And um, yeah, it, it, this is the idea of the first members, including, the, including uh, OA herself. Uh, in in the in 1963 when the group was founded, so they thought it would be a good idea to um, uh, to do it in the same way as they did it during the Renaissance period. So there were no stages, there were no no risers for the choirs. So they would sing madrigals during during dinner, during banquets, sitting uh, around the table with their scores right there so they thought that it's a good idea and and it had that had become the signature of the choir that semicircle of chairs so and in that way our founder also thought that it it would be good that for for the singers to sing directly to the audience because there we, when we perform there's no conductor at the center the, conduct, the choir master sits at the edge of the of the formation. And do you sing also, Mark, or do you just direct while seated, or do you also sing along? In some songs, I do. Okay. Yes, but uh, generally, I, I direct from there. Yeah, and everybody, all the singers, are encouraged to sing directly to the audience, as I was saying, and. Uh, in fact, we have this custom that um, we don't just look 
at anything or a blank space or at the wall. We try to look at people. We try to look at people direct. We choose a particular person in the audience and we sing to him. And then in the next song, we move on. Or maybe after a few bars, we go to the next. So that's, um, we try to, to always connect. Everybody knows that the, our purpose is to connect to the people. And we do that by doing that zero in, zero position in the audience. And um, the singers or the choir is, when we perform, we, we uh, keep the number of singers to around 20. So it is quite competitive, as you can see. So it, um, before you can get into that circle, that semicircle, you have to sort of prove yourself first. It, 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 uh, it takes time. And when you get in, when you finally get uh, into the semicircle, you also need to, everybody needs to have, uh, feels that responsibility to, um, Okay, uphold or raise the level of sing of performance that was um, laid down by the previous batches. So that there's that kind of um, I think we, I can call it a healthy competition, and everybody wants to to be good and to be better all the time. Huh. I saw. Sorry, Giacomo. I actually got to see Mads perform at San Francisco State University when I was a master's student. I think it was when I was a master's student. It's possible that it was when I was there as an undergrad. But regardless, I remember, I, yeah, and I, it was either 2006 or uh -huh. 2002. Okay. So one of those, it, dep it depends on which time I was at San Francisco State. But I recall coming into rehearsal for the day and there were the chairs. I remember the chairs being set up in front of the room and, and thinking that's very interesting. I wonder maybe that's just so that they can sit down while they're being, they're talking to us. And then the singers all come in and of course wearing traditional uh, outfits and sit down in the seats. And, and I was like, okay, what's, what's going to happen? And then all of a sudden they open their mouths and start singing and the power of the sound that came out of this group of singers was so surprising because they're seated. You know, we're so used to seeing singers standing and having this kind of wall of, of people producing music and producing sound and to have them seated, it was so unassuming and so calm until the music started. And then it was just, we were washed over with this power of power of music. It was, it really was moving. And so you're right. That is the first thing that I noticed. And it was quite striking and very memorable. I still remember it. Thank you, Mark. I'm going to ask Zane for, to let us sit for now and the rest of our performances. See, we can we can produce a sound. Keep asking. We did meet each other, Zane. I was there already. Oh yeah, yeah. It was. It really was a memorable experience. I I still remember it to this day, even it being forever ago. <laughs> Chris. Maybe you could tell us a little bit now about uh, not quite as a uh, story to history, a relatively younger uh, ensemble, but maybe you could tell us a little bit about Aleron, uh, its general ethos, what, what it's about, and uh, maybe a bit of its history. All right. Um, unlike the unlike certain marks, um, Philippine Magical Singers, we are definitely a very new choir, young choir, in a sense that, you know, we're barely a decade old. Um, we formed back in 2006. However, uh, I got, a, I got uh, 
how do you say this? Um, I got my results from my applications in the San Francisco Conservatory of Music, and then I was I, I found out that I'm headed that, that direction a year after. So our operations got thwarted. Um, and it was in 2013 when I came back that I re, um, that we all decided to regroup. And it was not even part of my plans to, you know, to reorganize this choir. And I couldn't say no, I couldn't turn it down because as a teacher, um, I couldn't think of anything more rewarding than your students, your previous students wanting to work with you again. Um, and I was also thrilled to see how they've grown musically because as I went to San Francisco, they um, decided to uh, carry on with their musical endeavors and they've become such great artists. And um, so when we decided to form it again, the, ver the very first thing that I really noticed is how incredibly intelligent this batch of singers are. And, you know, we were, I think, 14 members back then. Half of them are summa cum laudes. And I was like, oh my goodness, I better be always on my toes every rehearsal, even if it's just once or twice a week. You know, there's no way that I can go to rehearsals without any sort of preparation because these kids are so hungry. And I felt that, you know, they have entrusted put so much trust in me being someone who just came from the U.S. for, for his studies and uh, I better deliver the goods. <laughs> <laughs> and you are an all-male ensemble or, or all-tenor, tenor, tenor bass ensemble? Yes. Uh, There's 14 of you. And the, what, what, what's the rep that you typically sing? Like, what, what was the reason that you decided to, to form the organization? Right. So, um... I realized that I had, you know, several counter tenors, and therefore we tried exploring into the Renaissance repertoire. And I think at that point, there were very, very few ensembles here in the Philippines. I'm not really sure, but uh, very few male, not only male choral ensembles, but male choral ensembles who would really delve into the falsetto or the counter tenor voice. So I suppose uh, that's one of the things that would, you know, make us quite different from from a lot of the ensembles in here. Yeah, so since we started, um, I remember our my set of officers, or what we call the executive committee, uh, really convinced me to participate in competitions because we were relatively new and we needed funds. <laughs> and maybe that was a good way to you know, um, jumpstart our funding so that our operations can run. Um, so we participated in that competition and that, that was our very first win. And I was really hesitant to do that because coming from the U.S., uh, I noticed that ensembles are not really particularly keen on joining competitions. I don't know how true that observation is, but that was just my impression. Especially coming from the Philippines where everyone, that's like you know, the high school, the equivalent of a U.S. cheerleading, you know, cheerleading uh, endeavor where everyone so gung-ho into it. And I was part of that tradition as well. You know, back in the Ateneo College Glee Club when I was a singer, that's what we did. We joined competitions. And I didn't want to do that anymore. <laughs> uh, 
I really did it. Because, you know, I just didn't want to compete anymore. I don't know. Uh, I don't want any stress. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but what can I do? Uh, the singers were just so hungry for it. And, you know, they really, really wanted it. And they thought that it would help boost uh, a very uh, young organization such as ours. So we did that. And I had one condition with them before I agreed to do it, and that is to ensure that we also do not miss out on what I actually want for us to do, which is to create programs that are either thematic or really innovative, that will feature a lot of music that are not commonly heard of. And I suppose, uh, yeah, to find, to explore ways to really innovate the idea of a choral concert in such a way that will really communicate a lot of things that are very difficult to communicate through the usual conventional format of a concert. And that's really what I wanted to do, and they agreed. So now my life has never been so stressful having to combine both the competition arena and the, you know, uh, <laughs> um, the, uh, I suppose, that idea of commitment to a more innovative way of programming. Let's listen to a live recording from Aleron Now, a performance of Stars by Eriks Eschenwalds. You'll notice that in this piece, the choir is accompanied, but not by piano or organ or something more traditional as we might expect. Instead, Eschenwalds has set Sarah Teasdale's 1920 poem for chorus and six water-tuned glasses. The effect of this is just heavenly and perfectly depicts what the lyrics reflect on within the piece, stars and heaven. Something else I'd like to point out is that this is a group of all-male singers, and although there is indeed a TTBB version of this piece, Aleron is singing the SATB version, and exceptionally well. It's no wonder they have won a ton of competitions.
you've you've both described sort of this um, this competition landscape as part of sort of what makes up the the Filipino choral tradition in this landscape. Um, maybe you could, you could tell us a little bit more about that because both of you represent these really terrific, uh, you know, one new sort of one a little bit more storied example of uh, the choral Philippine tradition. What else do you suppose? I mean, aside maybe from these competitions and this sort of this, this sense that everyone participates, Filipino choral tradition is just known as being top notch. Why? What else? What is it about it that that makes it sort of so special and that raises the quality bar so high for for you know that that folks in San Francisco and around the world know of your organizations? Well, first of all, it wasn't always like that. I mean, I mean. I would like to believe that we have now at present we are we have a lot to contribute now that we that there the fact in fact there are really good very good choirs in the country but it wasn't always like that no um I can say I can probably um enumerate maybe point out three things that that have contributed to this, to what you're saying, uh, Giacomo. Um, first, in in the, it was only in the 70s when formal education in choral conducting was established in the Philippines, in in our university, in the University of the Philippines. No, as far as I know, it was the first. Well, um, before that, conducting was uh, very much associated with the composers, it, it would be the composers who would do all the conducting. They would conduct their works, they would conduct uh, um, Western music with their, with their orchestras or, or choirs. But in, it was only in the 70s when choral conducting was uh, established as a, a choice of uh, interest, uh, interest of a major, it was a, students can major in choral conducting in the University of Philippines. And many schools followed after that. Several schools followed after that. And I would say those conductors, those students at the time were who are now who have become our teachers, they are they, they are the ones who laid the foundation for all of us who followed them. So and we are very grateful for that, for for, for those people, for those conductors. And we have we still have them with us, they're still working, they're still doing their craft. And then, yeah, around the same time, we had that, um, we call this our, it's a music festival. This is a national, um, national music competition for young artists, we call this the NAMSIA. And it's a, it's a project of the Cultural Center of the Philippines, which is our main, venue for performances for, and also of the Department of Education. So this is a um, we, this is a way to promote performance and music performance among the students across the country. So they would um, get choirs or musicians, young musicians, singers, instrumentalists and and they would compete from all over the country, and then they would go to Manila and uh, compete. I'd like to believe that that has also contributed to the um, raising of the standards of choral singing, especially in the in the choir. Um, those uh, competitions, because we have uh, three categories for elementary, primary school, and high school and college. 
and then yeah and we still have them now and then uh, but aside from that especially in the 80s 90s and up to now more and more of these festivals have been organized festivals and competitions i we don't know many of them i mean there, there's a few that we know of what's like the gold standard or the 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 sort of most uh, interesting competitions for you? Is it like the interculture things that are more international? Is it more the local competitions? Is it stuff like the World Choir Games? I mean, wh what do you tend to gravitate towards when you think about when to apply groups to a competition? We don't have those, um, because the interculture thing. We, we, we have, a, I think, Chris, am I correct? We have sometimes, we, they, there were years that they got to organize uh, festivals in, in our country. But we have more of locally organized ones. So, for example, there is this um, uh, <laughs> high school a competition for high school choirs, and uh, which started in 1999. And every year, and every year, we would be asked to adjudicate, and we always see. I've witnessed how the choirs have become better every time, and it's like as Chris was saying. <laughs> But it's it was like uh, the cheerleading thing. So every time there is there are new things. Every year they are doing new things, and the same thing I would say with uh, um, uh, other competitions. It may be just around uh, just in the locally based based on the, what we call that for only for choirs for in in the city or in a province. But then there are some who are open to accepting applicants from other provinces we have now we have this um international car competition where chris and alion won in the first edition which is the andrea venerashan international choral festival we have that every two years and start that started in 2013. maybe we could shift and talk a little bit about how each of you thinks about your artistic operations for a particular season especially i mean chris maybe we'll toss this over to you first when you've got your mind in two places you've got your organization maybe thinking about a competition and you're thinking about a set of music that would be appropriate for that but then you also have stories you'd like to tell and you know you have a season maybe that you're you're considering planning Chris, we'll start with you. How do you think about preparing and planning for your artistic seasons? What comes to mind when you start thinking about what you'll prepare and present? Hmm. Um, the very first thing we talk about, well, I have uh, what, I, what we refer to as the music committee, um, which is comprised of the different section leaders of the choir. There's one for each section, counter tenors, tenor, first tenors, second tenors, etc. cetera. Uh, and I am fortunate to have a music committee who are also um, musicians themselves, like uh, full-fledged students, either of conducting or voice or even composition. And so every after rehearsal, we would gather right here in my place where I am right now and then serve them dinner as a way to, you know, uh, I don't know. Um, after dinner, we would listen to a lot of recordings, discuss what we really want to communicate. And that has to be the very first clear agenda. What do we want to tell our audience this time? Considering both the trajectory of the choir as well as what's what we would consider to be relevant in our society. 
and because of that um logically our direction would be up towards a more text driven text driven kind of programming uh, we look for text that would really uh explore either the emotion or the sentiment or i suppose the ethos of a particular concert <clears throat> and there were times that we would that i you know that the times would be so challenging and i myself feel very very strongly about something that it, it can't be helped but to be very very personal about these concert programs for instance and this might seem controversial and you know it was in 2016 when we elected a new president who was also very controversial because of the stance with the drug war and i thought that we we had to talk about this this is every in everyone's consciousness and this might be something that a lot of people might be afraid to talk about in a concert because you know in a sense the art can really provide that escapist um, experience for everybody. And I don't think anyone will want to go to a concert wanting to, um, wanting to um, be dealt with such difficult issues. So it was a difficult but also very compelling, uh, compelling uh, call for me personally. And I have a team who agreed. So we decided to talk about violence. And through that, we had to look for music that actually centers on that. Uh, and apart from that, apart from the gathering of literature that would discuss that, we also had to look for venues that would create that experience for our audience where there is a sense of a history of violence involved in the location itself and so we uh i remember we were able to find a location where a church was currently being renovated because it was i think a that church was being transformed into a museum because it was ruined during the second world war and it was in no way uh already um finished it was still in tatters and i thought that was a perfect place we had to look for the you know a separate lighting crew to really light up the venue and it was bereft of any ventilation <laughs> but at the end it was really a fantastic experience that i didn't even expect because you know it really created that atmosphere where everyone will really see what we were trying to communicate and we also have a lot of artists in the choir were not necessarily musicians but are from different fields like the theater uh so i would pick on their brains to somehow make our concert even more multifaceted and have those layers uh such that the overall choral experience will be much more holistic and yeah multi-dimensional i suppose I love that. We've been talking actually a lot this season on this show about the venue choice of a chorus and how uh, for many groups, especially here in the United States, when you think about choral music, it 
gets performed in a church. Like that's just where you sing choral music, unless you're at a school where you're performing at the at the concert hall that's that's on campus. But for, but even for me, when I was in college, we didn't sing on campus. We sang in churches around San Francisco, and that a church comes with certain ideas for certain people and it can be a barrier for some audience members and so i love that you're talking about finding other venues and different ways to bring choral music to your audience and and how the to you the venue becomes a an actor a a character within the performance you know it has its own voice it has its own story to tell that's to me, really, really fascinating. I love where you've gone with that. Mark, just to lob the same kind of question over to you, does is that something that MADS considers as well as your programming? Is Are there are you looking to do things that are a little bit outside the norm and, and perform in churches that have no ventilation? <laughs> <laughs> First of all, let me... Um, I, let me just say that, that I was in that concert Chris was talking about, and it's, uh, I, I really believe that will stay in my memory for a long, long time. Yeah, the the, the Mads is uh, is a resident choir of the Cultural Center of the Philippines, and that's where we get uh, quite a uh, substantial amount for for our from our for our funding as as funding. So we perform there. We our concerts, our major concerts, are always in at that. In that place and we have, we have two major concerts every year but then we also get to perform and we get we got to in, um, invited to perform in other venues and for other organizations and we sometimes we get to discuss with them possible venues but um, yes most of the time we have those uh, <laughs> the churches that our only options or auditoriums or even gymnasiums, we don't really get to have um, much options, if you can say that, for for the venues. But I, there, there were times, not maybe as much as I would love to, but there were times where I can, I could, I was able to, to uh, pick a place like that, what Chris uh, did, and uh, do my uh, own programming for that, but it doesn't happen that often. What about your repertoire selection? So Madrigal obviously is in your name, but you're not confined to just that specific genre. You clearly have, have performed a, sort of a, a wide variety of styles and from, from history. How do you think about what you want to select per each concert? So what goes into your mind when you think about what you're presenting each season? Well, as a conductor, I always listen. I, I listen to a lot of uh, music. Now I listen to choral music, and I get to write down things that I'd love to do with with the mats. These are the things that I'd love to do in the future. So when we, when I, when when the time comes that I have to plan for a particular concert, I just get at my like my list. I look at it and see what music in the past that I have done or that I haven't done can match or we can do in this particular program in this, with this team. And there are times that I have to ask, uh, I had to ask uh, our composers, our friends composer within the group and also uh, others, though, and ask them if they have a particular pieces that with this particular theme for this for this concert of ours mm-hmm. so we do get 
to do a lot of uh, uh, contemporary music as well, or yeah, composer compositions by uh, living composers. How does something inspire you to make it to the list? Is it that it's technically tricky and interesting? Is it a, a turn of phrase? Is it a new composer? I mean, what is it that makes you sort of pull out your phone and type down, oh gosh, I got to remember this new piece? I would, when, when, for example, when I, when I plan for a program, I would really make a long list of pieces. And then afterwards, I will look at them later on and see which ones to take out. You know? I, I try to look at a good combination of pieces by, and by looking at what each piece is um, trying to show or what we, we would get from it or and maybe the combination of of all those musical elements we try to be able to give us a varied repertoire as we can i was wondering when uh, when we were talking with chris earlier about the com- competition versus uh you know non-competition performances do you select different repertoire this is a question for for chris first but we can ask mark too um when you're planning for a competition is are there certain pieces where you're like we have to program a piece that fits this category because that's how we're gonna win Definitely. you know is that is that something that you have to consider and and if that's true then which you just said it is um what are those things that you look for that make it a winning piece most definitely yeah that's a, that's a really great question um as much as possible i find to i try to find an intersection so that it, we could just be a little more efficient but most of the times I fail because <laughs> the demands of the competition is just really different. Uh, I don't think you can program in a competition, for example, a 12 minute choral uh, work by Arvo Bert. Uh, it, it's not going to be a wise decision um, and because I think in competitions, they are really looking for more technical, I don't know, technical, uh, I suppose, a display of technical prowess uh, in, you know, regardless of whatever as or whatever aspect that may be, whether it's rhythm, vocal, pitch. So I have that at the top of my mind when I am programming for a competition performance uh, or repertoire. Uh, Is it showcasing a certain, a certain element of virtuosity? yeah, uh, and of course I may be wrong there because there may be other aspects that I think the competition is looking for. Uh, but yeah, on the top of my head, that's definitely something that I won't necessarily uh, consider for a concert program, for example. I, you know, I could, I could only care less about virtuosity when you know, uh, thinking about a concert program, as it is mostly text-driven. Although I suppose that would still uh, make for a good concert program if you uh, incorporate such things if possible. Sure. Yeah. 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 And Mark, you mentioned that Mads does a lot of contemporary music that's been being written right now. When you're preparing to go to a competition, do you lean towards more contemporary music or are there like standbys from the standard repertory that you tend to go back towards old, somewhat older music because you know it'll be more successful in the competition? Yes, I always look at the the competition itself, or what what is their uh, thrust, and also in the, the different categories because there are different categories, and sometimes each category has 
their own requirements and they're they're asking for period pieces for example so i do have yes i do have uh, those uh, period pieces that, that are in standby uh, just to, so that um, they can provide contrasts in the programming also in the style but uh, i do agree that the time element is takes most of the time takes uh, <laughs> that primary role but you have to to consider how long how the duration of each piece uh, is and yes i just look at most of the time we are asked to do several pieces two to three even four and i always consider the contrasts the the variety in, in those four i i'd like to show not all difficult pieces for example <laughs> i'd like to be able to show um others not so you know maybe you can call it simple <laughs> not as difficult as the other yeah <laughs> yes. It's this whole subject of choral competitions is so fascinating to me because, as you stated earlier, it's not as prevalent in the United States as it clearly is in the Philippines. It, I think that it is in like up through high school because I know okay. when I was in high school, you know, you'd have like all all state choirs and you, yeah. you know, high school directors would take their groups to competitions and stuff. And I know it's true in in vocal jazz as well, vocal jazz ensembles in the states, but it's it seems to kind of stop at the end of high school. Right. Yeah, there's also there's also been a lot of discussion recently, of, particularly for the international competitions, mm. about um, how equitable they are, right? You may have some organizations that are the best choirs you've ever heard, but yeah. don't yeah. have the funds to be able to travel to, you know, Tallinn or wherever. And so you don't get the opportunity to hear as many of those groups. And so I think some groups maybe eschew some of the more international competitions. The local things, I think it's nice. Uh, you know, we'll do tours or we'll get to meet other organizations locally. Or when people come and visit, it's nice. You know, we'll have a conversation like this. And of course, if uh, if Aleron or Mads ever came, we would immediately jump at the opportunity to, to perform or welcome you. But, we, you know, we sort of focus a little bit more on, on those sorts of things. And I mean, there is, there is a thread, you know, some groups do, like the Golden Gate Men's Chorus did pr pr participate in the Langoflin, the Eidstedford uh, in Wales that we had done, I, th I think Mads did maybe, or, or UST did many years ago. But it's not quite the same sort of, uh, you know, we spend a lot more time doing things like performances and recordings and things like that. Um, but... I remember I was in SFC in one of the rehearsals, Megan asked the choir now that there's this actual, there's this actual invitation for us to compete, and I don't want to misrepresent anyone here, but my impression was that you know uh, the singers were just really lukewarm about the idea, and I, and the first thing that went into my head was like, this will never happen in Manila, you know. <laughs> what do you tell them that there's a possibility of you know going out <laughs> for a competition? Everyone would really you know, shell, uh, or how do you say this? Um, forget about their lives, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> Pull out all the stuff. really go for it. <laughs> they would jump at it. I think my choir would have had the same reaction yeah. that choral artists did yeah. if I came to them and said, hey, guys, by the way, uh, we have an opportunity to go yeah. to New York and compete. Yeah. And the, the choirs would probably just roll their eyes and just tell me to go <laughs> and take off. <laughs> 
Well, I think now would be a good time to talk about a couple of recent releases that each of your ensembles have put out there. So first up, Mark, you mentioned working a lot with contemporary composers, and the Mads recently collaborated on an album called Ephonos with composer Eileen Matthew Mariano. Can you tell us a bit about that project? I First of all, I feel fortunate that in the Mads, we have always had uh, composers among, uh, among the singers. Eileen Matthew Magnano is one of them. Now, when he sang for the group from 2008, I think, to around 2017 or 16. And um, he's one of those people who grew up singing in choirs. <laughs> and I remember the first, um, the very first composition that he did for us. It was uh, something that in, he got inspiration from the long bus ride we had in, in, in Argentina. <laughs> we had to go to this international symposium for choral music. And we were, uh, we were in a bus ride for, I think, for, you know, for 14 hours. <laughs> so yeah, from then on, that, was, that piece, which also included in that album, he got inspired. So he got to write and write. Yeah, he started writing a lot and uh, we would do a lot of them. Okay? And uh, in fact, in one, <laughs> if we go back, going back to competition, in one competition we participated in, we decided, uh, well, um, the requirement was to do works from one composer and I decided to do several of his. Where, where in, we were fortunate enough to win in that category as well. Uh, we always have this. No, we, I try to uh, always uh, uh, collaborate with composers, especially those among the singers, and um, discuss with them, discuss, I mean, the piece itself. It's good that he is there when we are working on it. and. Uh, he has his inputs, I have my own, and then we would, uh, we would all we'd talk about it and uh, come up with an uh, uh, in, interpretation that, match, uh, that matches our, both our likings to our liking. So we, we, I've done this several, with several composers, and I plan to do this more <laughs> in the future. It's it's spectacular. I have to say the whole we were Zane and I were talking before we were listening to this mm-hmm. album. The whole Larong Pambata Suite, it is virtuosic. I mean, there are so many bits and pieces in there that are really spectacular. And gosh, that Katrina Marie saga, that Ili Ili Tologanai, I'm, I'm probably mispronouncing it, but is she doing that fabulous descant all the way up at the top of this thing? Oh my God, folks, you need to listen to this this album and these tracks are really stunning. Uh, but yeah, those pieces, that, that Larong Pambata Suite, was that one of the ones that you took to competition? Because it's really impressive and impactful. <laughs> well, no, it, that was written after, I think. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I have to tell you that Aili is really um, uh, a playful person. So <laughs> in that particular piece, he, he, he used many of his, uh, we can call it child childish ideas and he put it there in that uh Pambata is it means a song of children's uh, play songs I think it's all about that as Mark just mentioned Eileen Matthew Mariano likes to draw from his inner child when composing some of his choral works 
The Larong Pambata Suite was conceptualized after some moments of humor during a post-rehearsal dinner, and is a collection of short pieces based on traditional games that children play on the streets in several parts of the Philippines. It was composed with the use of varied sound production, sprechstima, body percussion, and improvisation to recreate the playfulness and creativity that children possess so naturally. Let's listen to the first movement of the suite, Nanai Tatai, which is one of the popular Tagalog hand-clapping games for children. At the end of the chant, all players count 1 to 10 while clapping their hands, and if anyone loses count, the player gets his or her ears pinched. guys with Alaron just released an album just last year amidst the the covid wonderfulness that we were all experiencing called Into the Long Night and you just released that can you tell us a little bit about that a bit about that project yeah it's just a, a short compendium i suppose of some of our live recordings uh, and we thought, because that's the best that we could do at the situation since we're all isolated uh, <clears throat> So uh, we just gathered some of the recordings that we really like and hope that we, you know, maybe that it's uh, through Spotify, we could share it to uh, people since we haven't released them yet ever, even before COVID. Uh, and thus far, we have only really produced two albums. And one is the Kilang Hiwaga, which is the Tagalog um, translation of Omanyo Mysterium. Um, uh, and that was composed by also now U.S.-based, San Francisco-based composer uh, Gian Paolo Eleria. 
Oh, Aww. he sings in our in my choir. He just he just joined <laughs> us. Who now just uh-huh. who just joined International Orange Crawl? I think we'll never run out of names. Yeah, I, had, I had a good feeling about GP. Yes, yeah, yeah. we clearly we're clearly sister organizations here. I love them. And GP is one of my all-time best friends. So uh, I'm so glad that he was very much willing to adapt it into from an SATV setting into more of a uh, all male with a counter tenor uh, kind of format. Um, yeah. So, so far, those were the only two albums that we have released thus far. The pandemic has been quite challenging, of course. Um, we were, our next project, supposedly, uh, was to have a collaboration with Jan Schumacher of Germany to come here to conduct us in May of 2020. But that was unfortunately thwarted because of the whole, yeah. Yeah, but hopefully we can get back to that because uh, it seems like the situation is slowly improving. Since Chris just mentioned it, let's go ahead and listen to a track off that live album from Aleron. This piece was written by a composer who I am happy to say now sings with the International Orange Chorale, Gianpaolo G.P. Eleria. In Philippine choral music, it is quite common for composers to set Tagalog translations of texts traditionally set in Latin. So let's listen to GP's unique, modern, and fresh take on a text most of us are quite familiar with, O Manum Mysterium, or in Tagalog, O Dakilang Hiwaga.
can I add uh, something? Uh, can I uh, probably this is something that might interest you also, Zane? Yes. We have this uh, uh, another album um, which consists of compositions by another composer who used to sing with us, and this is Nilo Alcala. I know, I know, Nilo. Uh, oh yes. We sang. Um... What is it? Dogalen, yes, Dogalen, yes. Dogalen Amabazo, yeah, yeah. Dogalen Amabazo, yeah. included in that album, which is entitled Onomatopoeia. Oh, yes, we know that one. I was just looking at that album as well. We sang Dogalen many, many years ago when we did a whole set of music from Pacific Islands, and then uh, it won audience favorite in that wow. concert. So then we performed wow. it again at a future uh, concert as well. So we've performed that piece a couple of times and, oh, and Nilo is definitely on my radar of composers to work with uh, more closely. But yeah, that's great. We'll, we'll definitely put links to all of these albums and, and all of uh, this information in our show notes, of course, so that our listeners can find you guys and find these recordings because they really are outstanding. Such great performances. And beyond the performances being good, the music is just so, it's just so intricate and delicious. Delicious is a great word for, some, yes, for the core music I've preferred. I, um, before we, we look forward and talk about those things, I just wanted to throw out an, a question. It, so as I was reading the, the bios about both of your organizations, they're both heavily um, populated by, um, alumni of educational institutions, either choral, I mean, collegiate or high school, you know, it feels like both MADS and Aleron are, are gaining a lot of their members from this, this network of singers that have all come through the university system. Now, Chris, you were here in the U.S. and had the opportunity to really experience firsthand what the university uh, organiz- or, uh, the university experience feels like in the United States. So maybe you can start off by giving us maybe some insight as to like what the differences and the similarities you see between those two educational systems and, and perhaps how that pushes Filipino choral music to be so much more prevalent in the culture than it does in the U.S. Because I would, I would go out on a limb and say that choral music is not an endemic part of the United States culture overall. It's it's more specialized. That's what I would say. Well, we do. I mean, I would say we do up to a point. I mean, you'll have children who will sing in elementary school or high school. Maybe they'll sing in a choir, but it sort of stops there. You don't see the bridge between the, the educational system and then community choirs. Something seems to break down there where you see most sort of people fall off. But I do, we don't see that same sense, I think, in, the, in, in, in your organizations. So maybe there's a difference there. What, what would be the difference? I might be veering away a little bit from the topic here, um, because another thing that I think is worth mentioning is that, you know, we are a deeply Christian country here. Uh, and a lot of our, especially the Catholic churches, are, are fraught with a lot of choristers who are singing in a really voluntary basis. And I suppose that is another channel where a lot of curiosity start for a lot of singers, you know, from their involvement through the music ministries, uh, I suppose their interest in elevating the act of singing together is peaked. Um, And 
it intertwines with with a with a university with their university background because a lot of our universities are also founded by uh, a lot of religious institutions. Ateneo de Manila University is a Jesuit um, um, Jesuit um, institution for that fact. Um, and yeah, I suppose that um, experience of uh, uh, being part of that congregation or being part of that uh, organization as well as the educational system is intertwined with it. Um, Ateneo, the Manila University and the University of the Philippines are just really neighbors. All right. We almost share the same avenue. We call it Katipunan. All right. Um, you know, it's just like a 10 minute drive from one school to another, or you can even walk from one school to another. Right. Um, and yeah, so you can already see that it could also be a melting pot of a lot of, yeah, choral, uh, choristers, I suppose. Um, and Aleron's operations is also located in the same vicinity, so it's not so difficult to tap into that demographic. So uh, I suppose our organization, my choir, has benefited, benefited well from that. Mm -hmm. Mark, would you like to add to, to that? Yeah, uh, well, I'm not sure, Zane, if I got your question correctly, but I, I just want to point out that probably in in the in the history of choral singing in <laughs> in the Philippines, in the seventies through the nineties, uh, the it is the university choirs, the the school choirs, college and uh, university choirs, which oh, I mean they were the ones who have been creating a name for themselves. They are the ones who have been out there, not up there. And then perhaps in the late 90s, it, the community choirs decide, uh, started appearing, started uh, being organized. And it, it's like these community choirs, I, first of all, the MADS essentially is a university choir, but then when we became um, the resident choir of the Cultural Center of the Philippines, we started to um, accept um, singers from other institutions. Okay. So we're not any more exclusive, as you can, if we can, if you want, yeah, to the students of uh, of UP. Um, so in in a sense, if you look at look at it that way, it's like also a, a community choir because we accept uh, people from different institutions. And more on more of this uh, have have started to appear since the nineties. So it's like the it's like they are serve as the continuation the line the, from collegiate level from singing in the collegiate level to this so it's like uh, yes and there there are more of that <laughs> we have this a community course more and more and i think it's something good something that uh, we have to continue building on that's what ISCSF is, is a community chorus, essentially. <clears throat> Very high quality, um, you know, of singers. And they're all, they were all singers that sang in core, in college. They were, you know, engineers and, and chemists and other 
you know, they had other directions in their in their studies, but while they were in college, they sang in those top level choirs at whatever school they were at. And then when they graduated, they need a place to sing. And so I our my choir, IOCSF, um, definitely offers that. And I, I I'd like to see in the US more choruses like that pop up. Because we kind of have, we have a lot of quote unquote professional choirs and, uh, and then a ton of, of university choirs, but that, that chorus in the middle that offers a place that's, that's important. So I suppose another thing that, you know, maybe Sir Mike will never, ever, of course, admit to this or ever <laughs> say this, but I don't know. There's no sugar coating it. I think the reason why choral music is really much more endemic here in the Philippines is primarily because of the Mads. Uh, everyone looks up to the Mads. I, I would even go as far as to say that everyone wants to be like, you know, the, the Mads, you know. Um, <laughs> um, not only have they opened so much, uh, so many doors for all the choirs here, but uh, the level of adulation, right? Mm. It's like a Michael Jackson, you know. <laughs> uh, Choral concerts in CCP, or what we call the Cultural Center of the Philippines, is always crowded. Um, and it comes from various parts of the Philippines. And we look up to, we look up to them as really examples that give us inspiration to create music. Yeah. So, yeah. Wow. Everyone wants to have a hand in that. Yeah. That's it, Giacomo. We're going to have to make our next uh, tour an international one so we can go <laughs> to Manila. Yes. Uh, it's, it's just, Manila is, is quickly rising to the top of my list of places that I need to get to. Um, yeah, and we're just across the ocean. I know, it's just right there. <laughs> you practically throw a rock and hit it, you know? <laughs> Hop, skip, and a jump. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've been swimming, so I can try. <laughs> No, it's great. I love it. Well, I think now would be a good time to uh, to kind of take a look forward into the future and talk a little bit about what um, you guys have coming up. And so I'm going to let Giacomo lob that question to you. Yes. Uh, questions for you both. What upcoming releases, collaborations, performances would you like to let folks know about? Do you have anything that you're particularly excited about that you're preparing at the moment? Yeah. Um, in, in Wait. Where are we now? March. Sorry. Um, in April. Um, I think it's the very first time that the choir will come together again since the pandemic happened in 2020. And we will have a one week locked in program where we will yeah, come together. Uh, we have already selected a location away, about four hours away from Manila. Um, and yeah, where we will just really simply rehearse and, um, you know, perform um, select pieces and we will show it live on Facebook. Uh, that's what we really want to do right now because I noticed that the virtual format, because you know, during the pandemic, a lot of choirs have taken on the, have taken on the virtual online performance opportunity. It's an opportunity to still keep performing, but unfortunately that was not applic applicable to um my ensemble um and therefore we thought about this as a way to really reinvigorate the organization and they are all really thrilled and looking forward to doing that uh i mentioned a while ago that there is that collaboration with jan schumacher uh we de decided to just postpone it and hopefully it will definitely happen you know in the coming years it's not next year so 
Awesome. Mark, what about for Mads? What's coming up for you guys? Um, let's see. Okay. Uh, first, hopefully, our plan, we, are, we will be able to go on tour. And uh, the East Coast is, uh, of course, <laughs> oh, sorry, the, the West Coast. Yeah. The Bay Area is all. In the list of, of places we want to go back to. Okay, and so that will probably, hopefully, we, are, we will have that next year. So next year is also, uh, uh, we are celebrating our 60th anniversary. Yeah. And that tour is, pro is part of that. And uh, sometime in March, you know, March, April, around this time, yeah. And then uh, for our 60th year, we are finally opening our, yeah, we are building our, what we have been wanting to build, which is a, a Carl Center, a center for the, for the <laughs> where we can hold all our activities because the Mads has is not just a performing um, company. We also organize a lot of uh, workshops and educational activities. We plan to have it there, and yeah, so that's what we have been trying um, doing fundraising for lately. Well, it just so happens that the International Orange Corral of San Francisco turns 20 next year. Ooh. So if you wanted to come and do a joint concert, <laughs> I think an anniversary concert here in the Bay Area would be a great idea. We would love to, to host That's you all awesome. at any point. I don't even have to ask Sam. Look on his face basically Indeed. says, yes, this is a very good idea. Let's do this. I'm yes. certain you would find you would find quite a home in San Francisco. So we we would we would love to have you here. Maybe you can also, in the meantime, while we wait for your tours and and for y'all to to make your way here, can tell folks where we can follow along online. Where can we find you uh, on YouTube, social media, websites, those sorts of things? Well, for the Mads, it we the, the most active is is the Facebook account. So we have a Philippine Magical Singers, and uh, we're picking up on the our YouTube channel. So again, you can just look it up, Philippine Magical Singers there. And yeah, that's it. But Facebook and YouTube. All right, we'll put yes. links to that in our uh, in our show notes for sure. And then, Chris, you mentioned that uh, Facebook is a place where uh, you're going to hopefully do a little live stuff uh, yeah. in the coming uh, yeah. event that you have. Is there any other spot where we should direct folks to look you up online? Facebook and Spotify, I suppose. And of course, there's websites for both ensembles as well. Yeah. Okay. We'll definitely put links to all that stuff in our show notes so people can come and learn more about it and listen to these recordings. And we'll play a few. We'll have played by this time in the conversation, we'll have played a few selections during the episode as well. So so our listeners will have heard uh, the, the joyous sounds of both of your ensembles. Thank you, Dave. Well, this has been really fascinating. I, I I feel like every time we talk about Filipino choral music, it's like it opens up the floodgates and I just want to talk for a few more hours and I'm like, oh, we'll just do a whole series about it because it's just so, we've used the word endemic a couple of times, which of course it's a, talking about COVID and then the word endemic comes up. It's like, oh, that's a dirty word nowadays, but it does feel so much a part of the culture in the Philippines, choral music does, that it's for me as a choir director and a lover of choral music is very inspiring and something that I'd like to see 
happen more across the United States. The Bay Area, we're lucky. Here in the Bay Area, we have a lot of choral ensembles. Choral music making is definitely um, something that's important to people, but I'd like to see it spread. That would be really nice. So we can take some pages out of, out of your books. But this has been really great. So wonderful to talk to you both and to hear about your ensembles. And, and I'm sure we're going to have another conversation. We're going to have a whole episode just about competitions. I know we will. <laughs> But uh, yeah, thanks for taking the time and um, we'll look forward to connecting with you both again soon. Thank you. Thank you too. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Okay. Let's finish off today's episode with one final piece performed by the Philippine Madrigal Singers. We mentioned it briefly during the conversation and because IOCSF has also performed this piece, we thought it would be a fitting end to the episode. Written by Nilo Alcala, the piece Dogalen Amabaso, based on a chant from the Maranao people of the southern Philippines, tells the story of a woman who fell in love with a sultan. She snatches a lucky charm from an old woman to enchant him, but the charm falls from her window and into another woman's hands. When the sultan passes by, the charm is presented to him by its new owner and he is lured away, breaking Dogalen Amabaso's heart.
Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the In Unison Podcast. Be sure to check out episode extras and subscribe at inunisonpodcast.com. You can follow us on all social media at inunisonpod. And leave us a review on Apple Podcasts to let us know what you think. Super numerary titles coordinated by Chorus Dolores, who thinks there should be choir Oscars. In Unison is produced and recorded by Mission Orange Studios. Our transcripts have been diligently edited by IOCSF member and friend of the pod, Fausto Daus. And our theme music is Mr. Puffy, written by Avi Bortnik, arranged by Paul Kim, and performed by the Danish vocal jazz ensemble Dynamic on their debut album, This Is Dynamic. Special thanks to Paul Kim for permission. Please be sure to check them out at www.dynamicjazz.dk.